Let's talk about some of the important ideas from 2021. Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we sum up our second season. Is it our second season, Steve? <laughs> it is unbelievable. Can't yes, believe it. We're still here. We, we're going to sum up our second season and recall some of the most thought-provoking ideas from our guests. We want to bring into public discourse the most inspiring ideas we've got in an attempt to help find the best way forward for our society. We're going to play for you clips from the episodes in 2021. If you've been listening all year, think of this as a recap to a year that was tough but wasn't all bad. If you came in late, here's an opportunity to hear some of the things you missed. If something strikes a chord, you might want to pull up the full episode and hear the whole conversation. Plus, this is a bit beyond a recap as we throw in some notions that occurred to us in retrospect. We started 2021 talking with author Jack Moscow about the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. We asked how he saw the Trump supporters that stormed the Capitol, and he had this to say. They're not delusional in the, com- in the way we use the word. They have very strong beliefs, and the stronger that belief is, the more you are impelled to act upon it. I think I understand very clearly where these people are coming from. They are fighting for liberty. The fact that uh, some media told them we stole the election and they believe it, hell, I I believe in all kinds of nonsense. 90% of the people of that rally, rally, this was their way of trying to deny death. Because to them, what's going on in this society is our society is dying. You know, and just translate from the individual to the collective, and you get that result. This is a seminal idea for us in 2021, trying to understand the divisions in our society. Jack says the Trump supporters fear the death of our society, and their actions are a form of denial of their own individual death. I think we could say the same about people on both sides of the Trump divide. We may not agree with the insurgents, but we do need to understand them and help find a way forward. Another big subject in 2021 was the ongoing pandemic, also a source of divisions in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world. Lila Rothschild, our good friend and program director for the Ernest Becker Foundation, had these insights. I think that social media has played a huge role with sort of quelling existential needs or helping with it during the pandemic. Becker talks about how self-esteem is one of the essential components of combating our our existential anxiety. The culture serves the purpose of providing that self-esteem if you live up to the culture standards and people need that validation. This is confirmed as well with terror management theory research. Self-esteem is sort of this original death anxiety buffer. The pandemic was this big death reminder, led people to basically seek validation, as research has shown, and as Becker talks about, when we're reminded of mortality, we want to cling to our pre-existing values and beliefs and whatever our worldview is to then push that anxiety back down. This helps to explain some of the divisions caused by issues related to COVID. Death reminders for conservative people could cause them to cling to fundamental values like freedom and distrust of the government. 
We asked her how humility and gratitude factor into our defense against death anxiety. If you kind of artificially prime people to be in that mode of thinking about gratitude or humility, it has shown to reduce defensive behavior after death reminders. So it's absolutely a good strategy. The problem is <laughs> we need to cultivate that. And and yeah, it's. I think that's really the question. The question is not like, does it work? We know it does. We spoke with Lila about Pellen Kesebeer, who wrote The Quiet Ego. She wrote about a quiet ego. That's what her article was called, A Quiet Ego, Quiet's Death Anxiety. And it was about humility, that being humble kind of fortifies you more against death anxiety. And and it might seem counterintuitive, you know, like, wait, wouldn't you want to be really confident? And so she wrote, humility involves seeing and accepting the truth about the self. In its most basic meaning, this implies knowing one's strengths and weaknesses and coming to terms with one's imperfections. As a result, the humble self is relatively protected from the need for self-serving distortions and defensive reactions to self-threats. On a deeper level, humility also involves accurately judging the self's place within the larger context of existence. The humble person is thus probably more aware and accepting of the fact that against a cosmic scale of time and space, every human being is minute. This should turn personal mortality into a somewhat lesser tragedy and potentially into a source of clarity and guidance as to how life should be lived. I guess it's just about asking yourself, do you like who you are? Would you be friends with you? Healthy coping strategies are what adds to your life and does not harm other people. A very wise person indeed. We saw white supremacy as one of the fundamental problems our society faced. We asked psychologist Henry Richards to discuss bias with us. When we're talking about racism, almost everybody says they're not a racist. Mm. And I think even people who are white supremacists don't really think they're racist. They just think, well, white people are supreme or they're, they're superior, they're better. And that's just the facts. That's just the way it is. Or it's the way it ought to be, which is right. sort of assertion yes. of, of their ethnicity. We're talking about people who have a problem that they don't think they have and they definitely don't want to have. We asked Henry how we can introduce learning experiences that result in what's being called anti-racism. We know there are a lot of attempts to do that, and I think that part of a package of experiences would include interactions with people of different races. It would include learning about the exceptional exemplars that are of other groups. It would help to have people exposed to the realities of the counterexamples. We delved a little more into the psychology at work in our divided society by talking with philosophy professor and psychologist Jerry Piven. A most important initial idea is that we are all, to some degree, pathological. It's not either or. We're on a continuum. All of us are capable of remolding reality in a delusional fashion. Here's Jerry. At the end of Freud's career, he was saying, look, we don't even distinguish between normalcy and pathology as if there's some sort of strict bifurcation and schism here. From his perspective, all of us were in some sense pathological to the extent that we were injured and wounded in childhood, and we were coerced into believing certain things and coerced into 
uh, conforming to parental values. Jerry then explored the psychology of many Americans pre-2016. What happens to somebody who is living in the middle of nowhere, like uh, somebody living in the South who lacks resources, who feels like nothing, who feels insignificant, has very little meaning or purpose? What if this person sees other people who are thriving, sees people on TV, sees those evil foreigners doing really well, is affronted by the, the horror that a black man could become president and may seethe with this kind of anger? How dare they not know their place in life? How dare these people succeed? How dare they be happy? Look at what misery I'm living in. Look what I don't have. And I deserve to be happy when they have all this stuff. Well, from Beauvoir's perspective, this person takes one's own sense of helplessness and misery and rage and jealousy and resentment, and then manufactures an ideology or seeks out an ideology that enables a person to feel better than them, seeks out a a white supremacist fantasy that makes a person no longer feel like an insignificant loser. One finds comrades in arms so that one can then target some sort of enemy, target, manufacture, fantasize, fabricate, isolate, identify, give face to an enemy who can be despised as despicably evil so that the self feels redeemed. There's a religious sense to it in the sense that the person is seeking out and being seduced by a kind of fantasy that redeems the self from ignominy and insignificance and inferiority by saying, you are significant, you are patriotic, you are the true deserving chosen people. And those people are the evil ones and they are inferior. And if you act in a patriotic way by massacring them or demonstrating how insignificant and evil they are, you yourself are some sort of chosen sacred patriot. It's a vehicle to fantasize one's own redemption and apotheosis in response to feeling completely abject and meaningless. And this is classic Jerry. There's something really kind of demented and pathological about a society where we could be so obsessively worried about illicit voting practices that haven't actually happened such that we're going to open up 246 different voting suppression bills in one week, again, in response to utterly fantasized, fabricated voting violations. But when people are actually murdered year after year, no laws are specifically passed, And then certain politicians, many of them call it political grandstanding or theater when people really want to change things. That in and of itself is kind of cringeworthily demented and terribly sad because actual people are being killed, whereas not very many actual ballots are being fraudulently cast, except by some of the people who are complaining the worst about it. So yeah, we are an incredibly fragmented society. And we are suffering from this incredible anomie and social death. And the fragmentation is so palpable in so many areas. But in the absence of any kind of a believable narrative, people are going to then throw themselves into something else really emotionally, really passionately, hold on to something in order to convince themselves that there is some kind of stability or meaning. We talked about alternatives. As Hamlet said, the readiness is all. And that means being emotionally prepared to recognize one's own vulnerability, one's own frailty, with humility, recognizing that one is human and one is flawed and one's perceptions aren't always right, and that one may even be sometimes irrational and needy and sometimes even pathological. The most 
difficult thing is to get people to give up those ego defenses. Humility. Yeah, humility, but it means really letting down the very ego defenses that keep us protected. We asked about hope. I think there is an inkling of possibility that through treating people humanely and openly as equals, letting one's own boundaries down, if you can somehow manage it, there is a glimmer of a possibility that people can see that humanity and respond. In a follow-up episode, we asked Dr. Piven about other aspects of our society's divisions. Contemporary experts believe that political decisions are not made rationally. He reminded us of a very scary idea from terror management theory research. As much as we like to think, I'm a rational being, I know what I think, I have control over my thoughts, my thoughts are not sort of randomly determined by various things I'm unaware of or fears of death or anything like that. I'm a rational human being, and I think this about Bush or Clinton or anyone else because of that rationality intelligence, but that if triggered unconsciously by a few mortality salience inductions, I can actually start to believe the very same nonsensical, violent, military inanity that I formerly thought utterly repugnant before. We all have what Jerry calls post hoc rationalization for decisions that have already been made. There's just a, some scary research on, out there that shows how not only how irrational we are, but how even our conscious sense of rationality and reason may be sort of an afterthought. Not exclusively, not entirely, but Weston demonstrated just how much political decisions are not only non-rational, but that they're based uh, in a very dynamically non-rational part of the psyche. And uh, there are other thinkers like Jonathan Haidt who demonstrate pretty convincingly and upsettingly how a lot of what we consciously think is a post-hoc rationalization for decisions that have already been made before we're consciously aware of them. And what's really scary, again, about Weston's political brain is that he's demonstrating that when you talk to people by using rational arguments, you're not reaching the same part of the brain as you are when you use the right kind of imagery and the right kind of technique of, again, hitting a different part of the brain. So this really undermines our sense of rationality, but also our sense of free will. In other words, we get an idea, a belief, or a feeling due to things like upbringing, death anxiety, ideology, or what team you're on or tribe we're in, and we find the data and facts to support what we've already decided and ignore what contradicts our preconceived idea. This has a lot of political and social implications. It calls into question why we should even have political debates. Are they going to change anyone's mind? We have to have enough humility to recognize that we're not nearly as rational or in control of our thoughts than we think or would like to believe. Part of the problem is we're not in control of what we believe. We don't know why we believe it. We think it's reality, and we can't just control it. And since we are self-deceived, since we are succumbing to that irrationality, then it's very difficult for us to say, I am therefore rationally going to choose the most life-affirming illusion I can find. Because if we are being self-deceptive, then it's very, very difficult 
for us to rationally know what is actually going to be life affirming instead of potentially harmful to others. Take Nietzsche's advice and consider the possibility that all of your own beliefs and certainties may be illusions, not just in principle, not just, not just pretend as if that makes you humble, but genuinely consider the possibility that you really might be deceiving yourself to say, look, I really don't know what's going on. I think I figured a couple things out, but I could well be fooling myself. Let me break out of my own convictions and dogmas and certainties and try to learn something new that makes me realize how complicated things are, that I haven't figured it out, that there's more to learn and more to learn from other people. And consider that your own ideas are sort of gossamer fantasies. Again, we talked about alternatives. There's very little you can be sure of in this life. So you have to go through life fundamentally saying, yeah, I don't know. You have to enjoy the pleasure of having your ideas change and and be fluid, be open to new ideas as new nourishment. Chances are you're going to be wrong about a hell of a lot and it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're an idiot or a fool or a waste of time if you're wrong. It's just an opportunity for you as a human being to soak in new things and enjoy the hell out of it. We had been talking about humility and gratitude all year. We approached an expert on the subject, psychologist Pellen Kesebeer. What do I mean when I say humility is having quote-unquote true perspective and being at peace with it? Well, for one thing, it means that we have proper knowledge of ourselves, our strengths, our weaknesses. We can afford an honest look at ourselves, but at the same time, we are okay with it. We are accepting of it. We do not feel inferior when there are certain areas where we are weak, which all of us obviously do. But we also do not feel superior to others in areas where we are better than others. I don't think it's easy. That's why um, we don't necessarily see that many humble people. It's not easy to feel secure in this world that is inherently insecure. And we are fragile human beings. I ran a series of studies. I believe there were five studies. And what I found was in line with my expectations. It turns out that higher levels of humility, they are associated with lower death anxiety and lower defensiveness in the face of death thoughts. They were less likely to respond to death thoughts with prejudicial attitudes um, toward outgroups or with endorsements of self-serving yet unethical behaviors. We talked a bit about happiness. It's not about feeling good all the time, but it's going through life in a fundamentally content way. That is what I mean by happiness. When we are going through life, just experiencing more positive, more constructive emotions and having our happiness to be something that is just at the fundamental level, we feel okay. Even if things are not always going our way, even if life does not always treat us the way that we want to, fundamentally we feel okay and just we are content with life as it is. Humility and enduringly happy life are very much related. Humble people are more aware of the interconnected nature of being. They are more 
in tune with the reality of existence and its interconnected nature. It is really important that these values find expression in the general culture. Intellectual humility is about respecting truth and valuing truth and being willing to reconsider our views, to avoid defensiveness when we are challenged. This is an important idea in a divided culture like ours. For reasons that Ernest Becker delineated, right, because we want to believe in our cultural worldviews. Like when we believe in something, it provides us with such a sense of security that we are not willing to let it go easily. But at the same time, I believe that if we could cultivate more of this quality, it would at least create more tolerance towards people who do not think like us. It would create a little bit more respect. We asked about solutions. When we cultivate this feeling of awe, for example, when we are in nature and we feel the connection to something that is larger than ourselves, that can also create a sense of humility, which would be very helpful. I like what she has to say about connecting with something larger than ourselves. Yeah, she was delightful. We wanted to know how we could use important ideas to help change ourselves for the better. We dipped into our vault, like we've got a vault. Yeah, a big vault. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for an interview we conducted a few years ago with Dan Lichty. An expert on the works of Ernest Becker, Dan responded to some of our audience's questions and objections, like Becker's ideas about death. We're in trouble. As a species, we're in major trouble. And this at least helps us understand why we're in that kind of trouble and what we may be able to do to pull ourselves out of it. There's a possibility here of being much less driven by your unconscious desires and your unconscious forces when you at least start to get a grip on what's going on there. We talked about Becker's take on religion. Religion can be a force, a dangerous force, because when it's your religion that gives you your sense of transcendence of death, and then someone else comes along and challenges that, in a sense, any challenge to your religion can become a mortal challenge. And it can lead people to do very terrible things in the name of their religion to stamp out the heretics. In other words, to get rid of anything that would cause doubt for me in my religion. And one of the things this theory does is show us why that the mechanism, that mechanism is so intrinsic to religion. We asked about alternatives. So when you encounter someone with a different belief, that's not so much a challenge to your faith, but rather an opportunity for to open yourself up and grow more and learn more from that person. Then religion can be a very, very positive force. Dan gave us an excellent perspective on causes of divisions in our culture. We were interested in the death-positive movement. We wanted to know how focusing on death can improve our lives and the world around us. For this, we turn to our mentor, Sheldon Solomon. The only way to live a good life is to come to terms with your mortality. Mindfulness is a buzzword of sorts that is trying to capture, at its best, a state of mind that is conducive to this kind of deep, death reflection 
that is thought to be associated with very positive outcomes. Death reflection is one of those ways to come to terms with mortality. Sheldon saw it as a possible response to our divided society. If it's death anxiety that underlies our hostility to people who are different, if it's death anxiety that impel uh, lots of people to embrace the big lie and still think that Donald Trump won the election, if it's death anxiety that's making about a third of the morons, I mean, American citizens that refuse to be vaccinated because they're hanging on to dear life to a delusion in order to reduce existential uncertainties, well, then this death positive should be number one on our to-do list. We need to become more explicitly aware of the catastrophic, mind-numbing, and socially debilitating consequences of being death-denying zombies if the world as we know it is to improve. Great insight from Sheldon Solomon, as usual. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. You've been listening to our annual Beyond a Recap episode, featuring Jack Moscow, Lila Rothschild, Henry Richards, Jerry Piven, Helen Kesebier, Dan Lichty, and Sheldon Solomon. Our search brought us to Dr. Merlin Mowry and to an idea we had never considered, the concept of immersion and how it can help us understand human motivation. Immersion is the desire to lose yourself out of the fear and anxiety of the overwhelmingness of nature and the world and the opportunities of the world. Um, Immersion reflects that need to protect ourselves by merging with something larger, by something meaningful that we don't have to accomplish individually. We can simply be a part of it through our identification, our activities, our service or sacrifice for that cause or um, joining in to that effort or that meaningful goal that we are a part of something larger than ourselves and we gain our feeling of value, merit, worth that way. For Ernest Becker, there are two ways to defend against death anxiety. Heroism, which is the individual standing out in society or a group, and immersion, which is merging with something larger than oneself something meaningful that we don't have to accomplish individually. With the experience of immersion, you have connected yourself to something of transcendent value, and you have served or sacrificed or in some ways supported and helped move that along to achieve its transcendent goals. So it's a vicarious kind of transcendence. We brought the discussion to what had happened earlier that year. Could I stand out on a limb here for a second and say, stop the steal and charging the capital en masse could be considered people immersing themselves in the an ideology or a, a movement or whatever? Well, of course. Okay. Of course. But most of our motives, according to Becker, for good or ill, are driven by desires to achieve something for ourselves and demonstrate our own superior potentials and actualize them. 
or in support of immersion, in support of some some goal that we identify with, we believe in, we give ourselves over to. So it doesn't have to be an extreme situation. And I think whatever your interpretation of January 6th, it's pretty extreme. What occurred, uh, the invasion of the Capitol. Extreme immersion. It happens in all kinds of, of our life experiences. Merlin broadened the conversation. We can never escape ourselves. We are always the innermost part of what we are is just our own identity, ourselves. We can never not be self-concerned. We can never not be anxious about our own well-being, our safety. We can never not be the center of our own selves, no matter how much else we care about. So ordinary narcissism, not diagnosable, is normal and natural. Our capacity for empathy is pretty deep in us, but not so deep it can't be lost or overridden. A great source of meaning in life is in terms of our relationships to others. I mean, even if you're going to be a hero, you still need to be acknowledged by other people. You cannot create that feeling of heroism by yourself. As for immersion, immersion also involves our sense of other people, that we are joining in some kind of shared project. Uh, We've taken on some shared goals. We are making similar sacrifices to support our goal and to support each other in the pursuit of that goal. Merlin gave us one of the most important ideas of the year. We value heroism more than truth. Well, that explains a lot of 2021 and what humanity is about. You got it. And we talked about alternatives with her. If we're looking for the fundamental things that are going to help us avoid the extremes of both heroism and immersion and create fulfilling lives, I would say reciprocity. The idea of reciprocity means what's good for me is good for you. What's good for you is good for me. Immersion is one of the two primary ways that we gain our feelings of meaningfulness. And I think immersion is about our ability to subordinate ourselves to a cause, to join in service and creative offerings of our abilities to support meaningful things. Immersion means that we merge into a larger thing than ourselves. She thinks love and families and communities help us cope. With deep commitments like love to one another and to causes, and we are influencing the present and the future. I think any time we give of ourselves meaningfully to something that endures beyond us, that is a partial cure for death anxiety. We have not only fulfilled ourselves in our lives with those causes, those commitments, but we have left something behind of ourselves. I have no right to act in the sorts of ways that limit you or threaten you. So you want the amount of freedom that a culture can give to everyone and no more. And that's the philosophical foundation of of democracy. Our democracy is under attack and we've never fulfilled its promises very fully, trying to balance off our efforts for heroism with our willingness to merge into larger, meaningful activities and give our service and time and money to those things. I mean, there are some practical ways that we can apply these ideas, but I think we're in a a very scary and hard time right now, and we've lost a 
a sense of who we are as a nation. And that's very frightening. Freedom, dignity, and hope are what we need. It's time that we we actively work towards those goals and that we encourage other people to do it too. Yeah, this is Merlin at her best when she's talking about hope and ways to improve our lives. Indeed. One of the other sources of division in America last year was the Me Too movement. We had the opportunity to examine feminist existentialism with Me Too pioneer Tommy Ann Roberts. She discussed how it impacts the lives of both men and women. Sexual objectification, objectifying and otherizing the female body is a sort of chronic experience of girls and women in our culture that it's characterized by reducing girls and women to their bodies, thinking that their bodies sort of represent them, and then commodifying, having that body become commodified. And so we presented this theory and we argued that the first consequence of this problem is that girls and women will come to internalize that perspective on who they are, much as Simone de Beauvoir said, they will become other to them own, their own selves. And we named that self-objectification and we invited psychologists to start to study this. She explained that we humans have a problem with our animality. The lengths we go to sort of deny our, our mortality, one of the ways we deny our mortality is to really separate ourselves from our body's animal processes. One of the things you're really obliged to do is to conceal and cover up and sort of fake that you don't actually have a creaturely body, right? That what you have is a sanitized, denuded, deodorized, slender, big-breasted, narrow-hipped, idealized body, right? Tommy Ann asked the question we, the interviewers, should have asked. Doing our job for us. Yeah. She asked this. How in the world are there women for Trump? Like, I don't understand it. It just <laughs> seems surely, surely, when it comes out that he is uh, happy about being a pussy grabber, yeah. surely that's the end of it now, right? No. No. I just feel as though misogyny is the toughest nut to crack. I think it's because, frankly, there's so much to gain by women themselves participating fully in the objectifying and self-sexualizing culture. But we now know from research that to the extent that you self-objectify, to the extent that you primarily view yourself as a sexualized object, you don't identify with feminism, you don't care about gender equity, you vote for Trump, because you see that the way you're going to get anywhere in the world is associating with men, right? And the way you're going to be able to associate with them is by sort of leveraging your sexualized body. And to the extent that you're going to opt out of that, it's a huge ask. It's a huge ask. And so part of being in that frame of mind is to not see other women as your sister. They are your competitor. I feel quite hopeless about the movement ever finally taking hold because there is too much to gain by some women competing 
by leveraging that sexualized body with other women. So it, it becomes very difficult to recognize the sisterhood that I think is required for true gender equality. So I'm a little negative about that. <laughs> we asked Dr. Roberts about a particularly jarring incident following the publication of one of her studies that validated objectification theory. Rush Limbaugh got a hold of our study and he did a whole radio program about the study. And he said that some feminazis, my colleague Barb Fredrickson and I, just proved why bimbos are dumb. Whoa. A new term introduced in the culture war, feminazi. Ah, yes. Tommy Ann took it as a badge of honor. She went on to look at a hopeful option. We have a wonderful opportunity. I think in our relations with one another to sort of co-experience the flawed body. We don't have a soul. We are a soul. What we have is a body. It's not sort of just a thing to endure. It's a sort of, I don't know, wonderful, a wonderful part of existence existence is the existence that we have in this flawed body. I can't blame her or anyone else for feeling hopeless at times. But Tommy Ann gives us a way to get along with one another, despite our differences. As the war in Afghanistan came to an end, we decided to talk about the prospect for more war and violence in our future from the unique perspective of Jack Moscow. Human beings, in my mind, are one of nature's mistakes. We are not what we think we are. You are what your record says you are. But you name a species, a predator species, that doesn't remain a predator species. I don't think we could transcend our biology. Jack brought the discussion to 2021. Right now, our country is totally divided because we had as a country, despite all of what I said, bought the myth that we were a peaceful and prosperous country. We no longer buy that myth. Our present division is irreversible, absolutely irreversible. We will be involved in a civil war. I suspect there will be more actual insurrections. Our insurrections actually started with the Oklahoma City bombing, but nobody called it an insurrection. That was the militia from Michigan. We're going to have more insurrections. These people aren't going away. Trump isn't going away. The group behind him isn't going away. It is, to me, crystal clear. People ask me, well, if you're pessimistic, why do you work for a better world? Well, why not? I mean, it doesn't, you know, working for a better world that doesn't make me less pessimistic. It just makes it easier for me to try to cope with and understand my situation. Not the only pessimist in town. I hope his predictions are wrong. But I like that he's working for a better world and trying to cope with and understand this situation. I'd like to add, he helps us understand our collective situation. He does. He does. Jack's a big thinker. Yeah. We wanted to continue our discussion of war, this time from the psychological perspective, exploring the fantastical nature of war with Jerry Piven. He talked about a kind of mythology. The sinister danger here is that various incursions, including the ones that may not be impelled by actual concerns for life and freedom, 
are still going to be understood or misunderstood semiotically or paranoically within the fantastical imagination or mythology of sanctimonious necessity, elimination of evil, righteous intervention, even divine mandate, all couched in the argot of ardent patriotic defense, life and freedom against injustice and actual danger. So one problem here is that all this semiotic fiction and fantasy has so blurred and conflated the difference between actual human rights violations or imminent threats and fairy tale fantasies of evil that people may then derive deep gratification from the mirage that we're actually purging evil as we massacre countless human beings. A major fantasy is that we are protecting our freedom and democracy. We are protecting the world and freedom and democracy, but we're so incredibly inconsistent and incoherent and often hypocritical about it that when we start to maraud around slaughtering people and and killing them self-righteously, we imagine we're doing something for the sake of humanity and the planet and so forth. These notions don't depend on the accrual of facts or evidence. Human beings have an almost unlimited capacity for self-deception. It's not just denial or rejection of painful facts. It's also that we will sometimes throw ourselves into these fictional, fantastical narratives because those are the ones that blot out the dread of death, or in, in many cases, not only blot out the dread, but blot out our awareness of who we are and what our motives are and what we're doing. War is an opportunity for heroism, and it could bring out the most noble and courageous acts in some, but it could also bring out the most vacuous postures of heroism that only thinly veil the weakness and fear that seek out modes of violence and death to create the masquerade of courage or nobility. The irony here is that when people are committing acts of bloodshed or when they're engaged in war, they have the fantasy that they're doing something right. They're serving their country. They're defending the nation against actual danger and evil. But as Becker is saying, this is really kind of a fantasy. We develop these fantasies of other human beings as evil and develop these fantasies of the danger. And thus, when we start to inflict violence on others, we imagine it as patriotic and righteous, even as we're doing the slaughtering. And that's the irony. We are so desperate to escape ourselves, to escape our terror or even our inner awareness. It becomes sacred because these fantasies or delusions or activities purify and redeem us. War provides meaning and becomes a sacred triumph over death, over the terror of one's own disintegration and annihilation against the existential death we dread, the degree of despair and need and terror driving the fantasy and driving the act, that people make them into something holy because they are modes of salvation. We asked Jerry about hope. There are people who are genuinely compassionate out there. There are people who are ardently working for the good of humanity. There are all sorts of, I mean, really amazing trends among young people where they're doing great stuff for the environment and bringing people together and really trying to combat this sort of adversarial violence. There are also lots and lots of people who really do care, and they're not caring in a way that demonizes and vilifies and destroys others. There are really amazing people out there who are doing incredible things for humanity and the environment. Our favorite hopeful idea of the year. Human beings are capable of of really just truly appallingly humane acts toward one another. 
Very funny. Oh, Jerry's always funny. <laughs> Appallingly humane. I love it. Appallingly humane acts. We came to the end of 2021 wanting to examine critical race theory, wokeism, racial prejudice, and discrimination. We turned to Henry Richards. We started with critical race theory. Basically is this idea that we can approach racial issues in our society critically, which means comprehensively and systematically, to understand where it came from, how it works, how it's perpetuated, what could change about it, how could it best be changed. I think association helps people uh, actually experience other people. There is not a win-lose scenario. As long as people are talking and have something that is substantial to talk about. There are ways to handle this. This doesn't have to be a win-lose. Henry wisely tells us there are ways to handle racial conflict. It doesn't have to be a win-lose proposition. You've been listening to our Beyond a Recap show with Merlin Mowry, Tommy Ann Roberts, Jack Moscow, Jerry Piven, and Henry Richards. According to Will Stansel, a polling expert at the University of Minnesota, as reported January 8 in Alternate, one thing liberals fail to understand is that politics in the U.S. are often driven by tribalism and raw emotion rather than a concern with policies. He said, politics is as much irrational, emotive factionalism as anything else. But liberals only seem capable of understanding the fiction that voters' commitments are rational and mechanical. As Jerry Piven said, the current research shows how irrational we are and that rational arguments don't necessarily reach the part of the brain that makes political decisions. Like Yuval Noah Harari writes in a 2020 op-ed for the New York Times, Elections are not a method for finding the truth. They are a method for reaching peaceful compromise between the conflicting desires of different people. You might find yourself sharing a country with people who you consider ignorant, stupid, and even malicious, and they might think the exact same thing of you. Still, do you want to reach a peaceful compromise with these people, or would you rather settle your disagreements with guns and bombs? In his 2019 book, Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis, Jared Diamond, one of my favorite authors, wrote this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's great. He said, I consider our political polarization to be the most dangerous problem facing Americans today. Only Americans can destroy ourselves. Our fellow citizens, even the ones we disagree with, are engaged in a mutual project that affects all of us. We need to try to understand one another, emphasize the common good, and find a balance between and among the sides we find ourselves on. The answer may be humility and gratitude. If we on both sides of our divided society can learn to deal with each other with humility and gratitude, perhaps perhaps we can find a way out of the danger we find ourselves in. Important ideas, Steve. A lot of important ideas again last year. And a good year it was. And thanks to all of our guests. Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. 
Support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash the hub important ideas we are 100% listener supported and please check out our documentary video series conversations with solomon exploring human motivation now on youtube thank you for listening to the hub for important ideas i'm steve james and i'm ken swain stay safe everybody stay well this has been a contemporary heroism initiative production